0: Who the fuck wants to go to prison or something, especially if they didn't do it? That's the worst place to be, you know. He got the short end of the stick, man. And Eric got the worst of it. He died, you know what I mean?
1: On a cold February night in 1993, 14-year-old Larry Tufel held his friend Eric Morrow in his arms while he was dying. At trial, Larry testified that the shooter was Thaddeus Jimenez. TJ was sent to prison. Years past.
0: It was on my mind constantly. I mean, I would be at the house with my family celebrating the holidays and Christmas and stuff. And I think, man, this poor guy's in jail. He's not with his family. It's got to be horrible, you know. I felt guilty the whole time, man, and, it, and I couldn't take it no more. Almost 12 years after Larry
1: helped put T.J. in prison, an
0: investigator knocked on his door. That's why I was so relieved that they came to interview me so I could finally get this out of me and get it off my chest, man. I told them right off the bat that this guy is innocent and I would love to do anything I could to help to get him out. You know, this is the only time I ever lied and it cost me big time. Larry told the investigator that his testimony
1: all those years ago was a complete lie. TJ didn't do it. In November of 1994, T.J. was sentenced to 50 years in prison for murder. He was 15 years old. T.J. never confessed to killing Eric Morrow, and there was no physical evidence. At trial, prosecutors leaned heavily on T.J.'s extensive arrest record and his membership in a gang called the Simon City Royals. They also had testimony from four eyewitnesses who said T.J. did it. Most important among them was Larry Tufel. While in prison, T.J. wrote letter after letter, hoping someone would help him appeal his conviction. One of those letters landed in the mailbox of Northwestern University's Center on Wrongful Convictions. They agreed to take a look at T.J.'s case and send investigators to re-interview the witnesses. That's when everything started to unravel. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Frank Main, and this is Motive. What really happened at the Honey Baked Ham? This past summer, I went on a little tour with Larry Tufel. He showed me around the old neighborhood where he and TJ grew up, getting into trouble with their gang. I wanted Larry to give me some context on what it was like around here, back when Eric Morrow was killed.
0: Dad used to see SCR up there, real big, Simon City Royals. Is it still up there? Not up there, they painted over it.
1: Larry says he hasn't been here in a long time.
0: Yeah, everything's changed around here, holy shit. This used to be a liquor store. This is where the honey big ham is at, right here, right? Uh, It's condos, I guess, it looks like
1: it. Avondale is a nice middle-class neighborhood now. It's quiet. It was recently named one of the quote, hottest up-and-coming neighborhoods in the country. It's tough to imagine this place with a bunch of gang members standing on corners, dealing drugs, and throwing bricks at cars. We pull up to Larry's old house. It's just a block away from where Eric Morrow was murdered.
0: I was the poorest kid in the neighborhood. I mean, if you would have seen how this building looked the way it was when when I lived there. It was so decrepit, man. I mean, there was mice and cockroaches and everything. like Were you the, embarrassed the, by where you Hell, live? yeah, I was embarrassed. We caught like 20 mice the first day we moved in there with mice traps. I haven't been in this neighborhood like in 25 years. But this is totally different than I remembered it. This is really gang-infested, really. What
1: would we have seen here 25 years ago?
0: Oh, you'd see us hanging out on the porch, drinking, smoking pot, doing whatever, hanging out, all kinds of motherfuckers right there in front of the house. That was the party house.
1: But your parents have been out there, too?
0: Oh, yeah, my stepfather and my mom used to stay out there and drink all night. Friends of Larry's
1: parents would even go into his room and wake Larry up to snort cocaine. He was about 14 years
0: old. Like, I'd be going to school in the morning, and I always see motherfuckers laying on the couch, passed out from being drunk all night when I used to go to school. It was fucked up, man. Telling so, I mean, you, my parents were fucking bad back then.
1: Larry is the first person to tell you that he's made a lot of mistakes, but I really don't know how it would be possible for a kid growing up in that house to not get into drugs or join the neighborhood gang.
0: I still don't blame my parents for what happened. I mean, they knew I was going to do whatever the fuck I wanted anyway. They couldn't control me anyway, you know what I mean?
1: Just down the block, Larry notices a man pushing an ice cream cart.
0: You don't see that in my neighborhood. I wish I'd missed that. Those ice ice creams are the best. The paletas, I like the coconut. Mmm. We actually beat up an ice cream guy and stole all his ice cream one time. (laughs) We were bad, man.
1: The neighborhood's changed, but the memories of what happened here still haunt Larry.
0: Yeah, I go back to the car after this, because I don't know who's out here. anymore. But...
1: We drive just a couple blocks away from Larry's house.
0: This is the corner of Albany and school. Thirty fucking guys were standing on the corner when I first seen the Royals, and they were bricking cars with bricks. Right here, thirty motherfuckers, I swear. Mostly white guys. Okay, we're coming up on the park now. Let's keep going.
1: We go to where Larry saw his first gun battle. One of the royals had a gun stashed here.
0: And three carloads of deuces came down this street with bats and poles and knives ready to jump all of us at the park. The insane deuces were a rival gang. So they got out and started coming in the park. That's when Shorty ran behind the bushes and grabbed the gun and started chasing them and they were running for their lives. And he hit a couple guys, because I was right on the other side watching. And I was chasing him with a, with a crowbar. I was freaking out, man. I didn't expect that to happen, man. Like I said, I just joined it to be cool and be popular. Once i seen that shit, I was like, holy shit, this is getting out of control. i want to show you where the Moros live in the basketball court where we play basketball. Eric hit me in the face with the basketball. He was a bully back then, you know. And I hated him for it.
1: At first, Larry didn't like Eric. In February of 1993, Eric Morrow was 19 years old. Larry was around 14.
0: We ended up hanging out and getting high together and fucking. I got to know him and I started being his friend. Eric wasn't in a gang, but he and
1: Larry'd get in trouble. TJ'd hang out with them too.
0: Eric was tall and big and had muscles and he was fast. He could hop over fences and the police used to chase us and get away all the time.
1: Then the Morrow family moved. Eric wanted to stay in the neighborhood he more or less became homeless, couch surfing at friends' houses. Eric would come by Larry's house. Larry would give him things to eat and lend him stuff, like his Chicago Bulls jacket. Eric was wearing
0: that jacket the night he was murdered. The reason why he got killed, he got shot, was because over a 40 lousy bag of cocaine, powdered cocaine, I actually did some of the drugs with him in the gangway. We were getting high that night that that happened, and that's, what, that's the reason why he got killed over some fucking drugs. Now the
1: shooting happened in front of a honey-baked ham store when two pairs of boys ran into each other.
0: This is the honey-baked ham right here. I never actually went in there and got a honey-baked ham. I don't know why I didn't. You gotta bake them honey that way because ham is salty. You gotta put some kind of glaze on the ham or it's gonna be salty, you know?
1: On the night of the murder, Eric and Larry were walking east on Belmont Avenue. Behind them were the shooter and a 12-year-old boy named Victor Romo. We tried to approach Victor, sent him letters, spoke to his family, but we were told he wouldn't talk to us. In this video deposition, Victor is now an adult. He seems like he's got his act together. He's wearing a gray suit and a tie. All right, let's talk about the day of the shooting, okay? Sure. Victor's testimony is that just before the murder, he was wandering around Avondale with another boy, about a mile west of the honey-baked ham.
2: Now then what happens? I remember shooting off the gun in the alley over there. Shooting off what gun? The gun I had at that time. Why did you have a gun at the time? Well, I wanted to be a tough guy, I guess. No no reason in particular. Victor gives the gun to the other boy. Why did not you just hold it? I don't know. At that time, perhaps I was not that great a friend. I figured if somebody I caught with it, it would be him and not me.
1: They begin walking east on Belmont towards the honey-baked ham.
2: What what do you remember happening next? Nothing significant until I saw Larry Tufo and uh, Eric Morrow. And you're coming from behind them? Yes.
0: And then all of a sudden, they just came out of nowhere, out of the corner, both of them, two young teenage kids.
1: Larry and Eric were walking to a friend's house after they did some cocaine in a nearby alley. Eric got the drugs from a dealer in the neighborhood named Leo. Victor Romo says he had overheard that dealer, saying that Eric owed him
2: some money for the drugs. So that gave me the pretext to, you know, approach them. So what do you say? I don't remember, but something along them lines of, don't you owe Leo some money?
0: This is where they said, right here, they said, hey, Eric, don't you owe Leo some money? And that's when Eric turned around and said, it's none of your business, and kept on walking.
2: I believe some of my thinking in all that was to show how tough I was. Wasn't my intention for anyone ever to get shot or killed.
0: So then we kept on walking, and then out comes the gun, like right here.
2: Victor wasn't surprised when his friend pulled out the gun. I guess in some sick way, I kind of uh, expected him to and wanted him to. Didn't necessarily want him to shoot, but I did want to appear as tough as we possibly can without necessarily getting in too big of trouble. Larry kind of backs off, like, oh, you know, that's between you guys. And Eric says, put that fucking gun away. So he put it
0: back in his pocket and kept on walking. Right when it got about right here, this is probably where the honey-baked hand was at. They pushed him up against the wall, both of them,
2: like this. Eric then punched the boy holding the gun. Punched him where? In the face. Like, at the same time, the, the gunshot went off. When that happened, I kind of remember him saying, oh, shit, and they both ran. Who said, oh, shit? I believe it was Eric Morrow. Anyhow, they started running eastbound. We started running westbound. I know we ended up, I think, like on the the train tracks.
0: I ran through the gangway because I thought they were going to come after me next. And that's when I was running towards my house, and I seen them running that way towards the tracks. That's when I turned around to go check on Eric. So he was like right here stumbling on the curve, like this, holding his chest saying, I got shot, I got shot. And that's when I, he fell and I grabbed him.
1: A police car pulled up. Larry was put in the back seat. An ambulance took Eric to the hospital
0: while Larry was being driven to the police station. I heard it over the police radio that he died on the way to the hospital. I just broke down in tears. You know, I, I feel bad, man. He got the worst of everything. And he never had was in gangs. It's like all the people that don't deserve it are the ones that get killed all the time. You know what I mean? I know that had to be painful because it only took one bullet and that went straight to his heart. You know how much they had to hurt before he died? That's a horrible way to die, man. Getting murdered, that's the worst way to die.
1: In the backseat of the police car, Larry was sitting next to an older man who he knew another supposed eyewitness.
0: The first thing that came out of his mouth to me was, was it TJ? And I said, no, it wasn't TJ. He wasn't even around. And he kept on insisting that he seen TJ do it. And that's when the other witnesses said they seen what happened. That's what fucked everything up.
4: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Back in 1993, Larry told the police that TJ did it, version 1. But today, he's got a completely different story. T.J. isn't even there. That's what you just heard, version two. Uh, You heard our interview with Larry. What did you think?
3: Well, with all due respect to Larry, I believe Larry version number
1: one is true. And I don't find version number two credible. Andy Hale was the attorney hired to defend the city and the police against T.J.'s wrongful conviction lawsuit. We let Andy listen to some of our tape with Larry. Andy doesn't believe much of anything that Larry says today. He can find holes everywhere. You know, he talked on in the interview about there being snow on the ground. That's not true. There was no snow on the ground. There's no blizzard. So, this gets messy. Larry, circa
0: 1993. I had no supervision from my parents.
1: Did you ask for your parents?
0: My parents, they didn't care. They did not have they win, anyways. Larry is driven away from the murder scene
1: in a squad car. He arrives at the police station for interrogation.
0: It was just this wide little room, like a, no windows, nothing, just a closed area. They were yelling at me, screaming, saying I was going to go to jail. He doesn't even talk about the interrogation other than
3: for like 10 seconds with no details at all, which I find
1: very telling. Larry says he was trying to be helpful in identifying the shooter, but he didn't know the guy's name. He gave a description and left. Then, the police detective got statements from three supposed eyewitnesses who said TJ was the shooter. Nobody was there except me. One eyewitness said he saw the shooting from a third-floor window. Larry says there's no way he could see it from that high angle in the dark. I swear to God, I'm the only one that's seen what happened. The other two eyewitnesses were a mother and daughter who said they saw
0: the shooting on the street. Larry says they were in a bar. They didn't come out until after it happened. You know, there's no way they could have seen what happened. It was impossible. But the
1: police were now armed with those statements contradicting Larry. And they went to his house. Three
0: o'clock in the morning, they came banging back on my door and said that I was lying. And they had other witnesses that seen what happened. They said they know TJ did it. And finally, I was so exhausted and shocked, I just gave up and said, yeah, he did it. You know, I gave up.
1: Andy Hale says this wasn't your classic course of interrogation. Larry offered up TJ's name pretty easily. Hale says the detective spoke to Larry at his house. For only 15 minutes. So it's not two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours
3: of interrogating him and yelling at him. You gotta say it's TJ. It wasn't TJ. You gotta say it's TJ. It wasn't TJ. You gotta say it's TJ. And then they broke me down after hours and hours. Did
1: you wanna to go to bed or were you, were you just
0: tired? Or I was what? just exhausted and in shock and tired and I I couldn't, I tried to tell them over and over, but they didn't listen. I just gave up. I know it was wrong. I should have stuck to the truth. I should have just told them to put me in jail, you know. But I didn't want to go to jail. I was scared out of my mind, you know.
1: To this day, Larry insists that he was a little kid who got broken down by the police through hours of interrogation that night. And for years, he continued saying what the police wanted him to say, even under oath at TJ's murder trial.
3: Larry is what put TJ in prison. Larry was the guy. He's a friend with T.J. So, you know, it's not a case of mistaken identity. That's why Larry's testimony was so compelling to that criminal jury. They were friends and they knew each other. So why wouldn't anybody believe Larry?
1: Larry even stuck with that story after T.J.'s trial. And Larry says that identifying T.J. as the shooter came with real
0: consequences from the Simon City Royals. I had to go back to that fucking neighborhood and live there. The police didn't do shit. They didn't put me in witness protection program or nothing. They wanted my testimony. That's all they wanted, and they threw me right back out there after that. While we're standing
1: outside his old house, Larry says the royals would pay him visits.
0: All the royals had to come out and wait for me to come outside and intimidate my ass all day. Grown-ass men, and you're a kid, wanting to kill you?
1: If telling a lie is making your life a living hell, why not just tell the truth? The Royals are after him and want to hurt him
3: because he has squealed on one of their own. Good God. I mean, wouldn't you just say, hey, state's attorney's office, please. T.J. didn't do it, right? You got a whole gang after you? Come on. I I mean, that to me right there, right there, makes no sense. I just found that to be
1: incredibly incredible. And then there was T.J. himself. He never got in touch with Larry to try to get him to tell the truth. Hale doesn't think that makes any sense.
3: Once you found out that Larry was telling the police you shot Eric Morrow, did you make any attempt to find out why he was doing that?
2: I don't don't believe so.
3: If I got accused of murder, okay, because you, Frank Main, told the police I shot somebody and I'm now convicted, I'm sitting in prison for years... I would contact you and say, Frank, what the hell is going on? Why did you say I shot somebody? Go tell the police that is wrong. I'd be writing you or calling you every day. I'm just going to let it go?
1: Larry, circa 2006. Larry was homeless for a little while. He worked as a janitor for Chicago Public Schools, and he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Can you walk us through the moment
0: when Northwestern came knocking on your door? I mean, what was that like? I was living at this crappy place called Somerset. It was for people that had mental illness and stuff, that needed to place, housing and stuff. And my mother died. I had nowhere to go at the time, and uh, I ended up living there. It was a bad place. I lived there for about five years. And uh, that's where they came to interview me at. The private investigator was working for Northwestern University's
1: Center on Wrongful Convictions, which had agreed to take on T.J.'s case in 2006. When somebody shows up at a mental health facility
3: where Larry Tufel is housed and diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and now says to him, we think T.J.'s innocent, and he
0: says, yeah, you're right, T.J. wasn't the shooter, he's innocent. They explained who they were, and they said they were a private investigator for T.J. They said, oh... Oh, good, I said, I was actually relieved, you know, because this is my time to fix what I did, and i cooperate with them. I told them from the very day that they came that he was innocent, he was in jail for that. They were nice people, you know. We contacted people who worked on TJ's case for Northwestern,
1: but they wouldn't talk to us. Andy Hill thinks Larry was vulnerable and possibly suggestible. So I don't think his recant when he's in a mental health facility was credible. Hale's argument is that Larry in 2006 was in no mental state to recant his testimony. 14-year-old Larry was being truthful with the police, and if he was lying back then, there were plenty of opportunities to tell the truth and make his life easier, but he never took those. Larry's argument is that in 1993, he was a scared 14-year-old kid who didn't want to go to jail. He became a man riddled with guilt, suffering from mental problems. And what does
0: Andy Hale know about his life anyways? he wasn't in my shoes he didn't see what happened fuck them lawyers they're pretty much scumbags themselves. self lawyers if you ask me they don't know how it is growing up i know what the fuck i seen i'm just giving you my personal opinion it's
3: absolutely right i've not stood in larry's shoes or anybody else's shoes i just think that that the more credible case is that his initial testimony was truthful
0: so and i know better next time if something like this happens again I didn't see shit. I don't know shit. I don't want to know shit. Because all I did was cause me more trouble.
1: Larry's recantation kicked off the whole process of getting TJ out of prison. It all took nearly two years. Right? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm ready? I am. Northwestern took Larry's new testimony, among other evidence, to the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. It landed on the desk of the head of the post-conviction unit, Celeste Stack.
4: I came out of the meeting with them objective. I knew it had to be investigated thoroughly, but I knew there were problems there. Nobody wants to put the wrong person in jail. We were in constant communication about this. This was a, you know, kind of a big deal.
1: Prosecutor Darren O'Brien was working with Stack on T.J.'s case. He was known as a law and order guy, responsible for deciding whether to charge violent criminals.
4: In this case, I don't think there was much else besides Larry that caused this case to get charged.
1: O'Brien looked at the two police interviews with Larry, the first one where he didn't identify T.J., and the interview at 3 a.m. when he said the shooter was T.J.
4: And he failed to identify T.J. in his original statement. For me, that's fatal set bells and whistles off in my head right there.
1: Stack and O'Brien boiled down the case to the two witnesses who were definitely there at the murder. Larry Tufel, who is now saying it wasn't T.J., and Victor Romo. Romo was prosecuted as an accomplice to T.J., even though he always said the shooter was a different guy and T.J. wasn't even there.
4: I was able to read reports on Victor Romo from juvenile court, and... He was very, very angry. He just couldn't understand why, you know, no one would listen no matter how many times they testified.
1: The police assumed that Romo was covering up for TJ.
4: He didn't even know TJ. So, and that we couldn't prove that he knew TJ.
1: Romo served three years in the juvenile system. Here he is talking about TJ getting convicted.
2: You never again gain the faith you, I guess, you're supposed to have in the justice system, knowing that stuff like that happens and it takes so long for the wheels of justice to correct itself.
1: Again, Darren O'Brien.
4: If you look back at the whole process, you cannot guess what happened. So, it's it's always easy to say, well, maybe he did it. I think he could have done it. If that's what your thought process is, you cannot charge that case. And so I think he didn't do it, and I at a minimum, I would say there wasn't enough evidence to charge him, but I'm convinced personally that he didn't do it.
1: The Northwestern lawyers made one failed attempt to get a judge to release TJ. Then, nearly a year later, in 2009, Larry's story that he made it all up when he was 14 was believed. TJ was freed.
0: People can look at me and say I'm a piece of shit for lying or whatever, but you know, what would the fuck you do if you were in my shoes? You know what I mean? What the fuck would you guys do if you had to be wearing my shoes? Yeah. Andy
1: Hale still contends that Larry Tufel saw Thaddeus Jimenez shoot Eric Morrow dead. I think the state's attorney's office got duped. Did the state's attorney's office get duped? Or is Larry finally telling the truth? It's tough to know for sure. At minimum, it seems like there just wasn't enough there to fairly prosecute TJ. No confession, no physical evidence, just a handful of shaky witnesses. Does it madden you sometimes to know that the whole key to this whole case is Larry? It's in his brain.
3: Yeah, I in all my cases, I always say, I joke around, I say, God, I just wish, like, all of a sudden, miraculously, like, this security camera, you know, that nobody knew existed. Like, so this took place in front of a honey-baked ham, you know. Hey, there was a security camera there. We just got the footage. Oh, my God, Let's let's pop in the tape, and we can see what happened, and we can watch what happened, and we can... Resolve once and for all exactly what happened.
1: If anyone listening works security at the Honey Baked Ham on Belmont Avenue in the mid-90s, please get in touch. Next time on Motive. I survived because of the love and support that I received from my
2: mother. I just couldn't believe it. When he finally lay down, I kept going in there touching him. You know, his feet and stuff. Mom, what's wrong with you? I "I just want to make sure this is not a dream.
1: Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago based on original reporting from the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm Frank Main. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our engineer is Shelley Steffens. Special thanks to the listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible.